Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guests on today's show are Neil Triplett and Kim Liu. Neil is the Chief Investment Officer of DUMAC, the organization that oversees Duke University's $19 billion endowment. And Kim is the Chief Investment Officer of the Carnegie Corporation, where she manages the $3.5 billion foundation created by Andrew Carnegie. A few weeks ago, institutional investor named Kim its CIO of the year. She also appeared on the show last year in episode 52, which is replayed after this one on the feed. I had the chance to interview Neil and Kim at the 2019 TIFF Annual Investment Forum. Neil and Kim are board members of TIFF, a nonprofit organization founded in 1991 as the Investment Fund for Foundations that today manages $7.5 billion on behalf of only other nonprofit pools of capital. Our conversation covers a number of topics relating to Neil and Kim's respective day jobs, including the evolving of their investment approach, integrating macroeconomic risk, defining their own competitive advantage, managing a team, countering behavioral biases, using data in manager evaluation, and tackling the most challenging part of their jobs. I want to offer a special thanks to TIFF for inviting me to interview Neil and Kim at their terrific annual event. Today's show is sponsored by Northern Trust Front Office Solutions. When I talk to investment teams and CIOs, they often echo the same concern, that they spend too much time managing data and not enough time analyzing it. Two years ago, Northern Trust took a different approach to this problem and funded an internal startup called Northern Trust Front Office Solutions. They gathered together a former endowment chief operating officer, a front office technologist from a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, an award-winning design team, and a fintech company founded by a quant who coded for Harry Markowitz himself, working alongside dozens of clients to take on this shared mission. The result is a cloud-based, custody-agnostic platform that empowers asset owners with better operations and technology support to meet their middle and front office needs. Visit northerntrust.com solutions for more information. Before we get going, you can sign up at capitalallocatorspodcast.com to receive three different sources of information. Using the buttons on the homepage or the email list tab, you can receive an email from me once a month with the best things I've read and listened to over the month. While on that page, you can also sign up to receive our blog of industry news. Lastly, hop on the premium tab and subscribe to get access to the library of transcripts of podcast shows. Feel free to forward the emails you receive to friends to help spread the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Neil Triplett and Kim Liu. Our next session is a great treat. The buck stops here. TIFF Board Perspectives on Asset Allocation. We have a special guest moderator today. While his investment background goes back much further, many of you are likely regular listeners to his very popular podcast, Capital Allocators. 
where he dives into fascinating conversations with leading CIOs in the investment world. So please join me in welcoming Ted Seides, Kim Liu, and TIFF Board Chair Neil Triplett. Well, thanks, Pat, and to Dick and Andrea as well for, for having me here. It seems a little strange to be called a special guest when I'm sitting up here with Neil and Kim, who, as you know, just do a terrific job overseeing this mission-based organization. So with that, let's just start with this broad question of how do you think about investing differently than you did, say, three or five years ago? You know, it really hasn't changed a ton. I would say our core principles that we've always believed in, we still believed in. On the negative side, we probably spent a lot more time thinking about macro issues and geopolitical issues. I'm not sure how additive that has been to our portfolio. On the positive side, probably on the margin, we're thinking a little bit more globally than we used to, probably thinking a little bit more about technology and some of the trends there than we used to. But the core of what we do, I think, has maintained the same really for the 20 years that I've been at Dumac primarily. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have that much to add. I'll say that for sure, a successful strategy requires you stick with it. If you deviate too often or too much from a strategy, you're going to miss it when it works. And so I think that it's important for us to decide what it is that we want to be and stick with that. That said, I think it is a mistake not to recognize when the world is changing and it can get away from you sticking to a strategy for too long and not paying attention to that. So for sure, there are things that we pay more attention to. Neil's raised a lot, all of them. We pay attention to them. And I think it's caused us to try to think about the world just a little bit differently and to decide whether or not that makes a difference and impacts our strategy. So for instance, there's a lot of talk about geopolitical. We think it's largely noise. And if you're a long-term investor, then you look through the noise and you think about the opportunities it's created by that noise. But at the same time, we would be remiss in not paying attention to the fact that there are certain geopolitical things that are happening that may fundamentally shift markets. And if they are going to change markets and change our ability to rely on them, we can't ignore that. So trying to differentiate what those two things are, what is noise and what is signal, is what we get paid for and sometimes I think overpaid for because I'm not really good at figuring it out all the time, but there's a fair amount of more time spent on that than I think I did five years ago. So there's definitely a difference between thinking about these macro issues and then doing something about it. What would it take for you to change something in your asset allocation or your risk exposures because of a different view about macro or geopolitical risk? So I'll give you an example of one of the geopolitical things that we think about. Carnegie has historically had a really robust exposure to an emerging markets. And that's not a new phenomenon. That's a phenomenon that has existed for a long time. I spend a lot of time thinking now whether or not, why did we invest in emerging markets? We thought they were faster growers. We thought that they would provide differentiated exposure. So when the U.S. struggled, maybe they would do well, and maybe there was some balance to the portfolio that would be created by that. So we spent a lot more time thinking about whether that is true of all emerging markets. Are all emerging markets growing faster? No. Are all emerging markets differentiated from the U.S.? No. 
somewhat directly tied to the U.S. And so we have to parse that a little differently. And so I spend a fair amount of time thinking about what China means for us, as an example. When China was a super fast-growing economy, now not growing as fast, clearly still faster than the U.S., but not growing as fast, at the same time, their domestic economy is growing way more than it was back when we started investing. And so perhaps more differentiation and more of a diversifier than it was before, because before it was so tied to the U.S. and perhaps now not so tied to the U.S. And so I should think about it differently. And so therefore, the way I use it in my portfolio should be different. My strategy hasn't changed, but how I use those things have changed. And yes, it's kind of tied to geopolitics and the relationship between the U.S. and China in some respects. So Kim, in that example, so what did you do differently in the portfolio? When we put it in there and we looked at the full portfolio and how it wrapped up, we had to change what its role in portfolio is. And so arguably, there are things about that that made us say, oh, we're going to increase exposure to China because of this. And then there are other things that are very concerning about transparency and government and alignment and whether or not they meet the fundamental test of aligning with the core values of the corporation and things like that. So I don't know that it has changed so much yet, but I think there's a real chance that it does change over time. Okay, so you haven't done anything except for change a few labels. I, I, I've talked to you about it. Like, I mean, like, don't okay. underestimate let's, the power of what is going on here. All right, let's keep <laughs> talking about it. While we talk about it, Neil, we were talking about an example where you actually did something. I think for us, it's, you know, it's hard to process, but we kind of view it broadly as there's risks in the portfolio and the macro can impact those. And then sometimes the macro can create opportunities. That's probably the easier way that we, we think about it from the risk perspective. And what you and I spoke about a little bit is really around currencies primarily. And so there have been points in times where we've gotten very nervous about maybe our emerging markets. We don't tend to hedge our currency exposure in emerging markets, but we may get very nervous broadly about emerging markets exposure for macro reasons and hedge that exposure, even though it's quite expensive to do so, or something like China specifically, which is a big exposure in our portfolio, just like it is in TIFFs, we may hedge the currency exposure there to kind of help hedge some of the geopolitical risks. I think from an opportunity standpoint, that's probably more how we've used it, is we see something like the China dislocation that occurred with the trade war, and we develop a macro view around that. Do we think this is a long-term structural problem? Do we think it's created kind of a short-term tactical opportunity? And that's what, that's what we did there. We added some to Chinese equities in the midst of that as those equities had dislocated. So that's sort of the way that we think about it okay. from that perspective. How do you think about your edge? So you go out and talk to managers, and you always want them to figure out what's their competitive advantage, what's their edge. What is your edge compared to your peers I don't know about relative to our peers, but what we view as our edge internally is identifying people. I mean, our job at the end of the day, I thought when I joined DUMAC 20 years ago, it was going to be a very quantitative job. We'd put numbers into a spreadsheet and the output would be, these are the managers that you should hire and learn very quickly that it's very much a people job. And I think that is our core competitive advantage. We spend a lot of time on the road visiting managers and our ability to assess the managers that we think are going to be the best performers going forward. That is, in our view, the core competency. It's challenging because data is very helpful in this process, but really returns aren't a big driver of our decision-making process. We want the best people in the portfolio working for Duke, and that's what we try to find. So I'm very conscious of the fact that an edge is something that can slip away from you very quickly. And I think that the things that we think 
that we're very good at or give us a comparative advantage, much the way, as it was described in venture capital, like soon more capital will flow in and that edge you thought you had is gone. There's not that many things that I think that are persistent edges that we can rely on to take us through multiple cycles. We do think that we're good at manager selection. I do think I have a phenomenal team. My team will not work at Carnegie for the rest of their lives, so my competitive edge can't completely be my people. I think one edge that is persistent is the fact that I work at Carnegie. Carnegie is the oldest private grant-making foundation in the world. I say all the time right now that we are the Miss America Foundation. We do education, world peace, and democracy and civic engagement. Who doesn't like that? I mean, if I was running for Miss America, I'd be like, I work at Carnegie. And I think that that would be an advantage. And I think that in the world that we live in, in all different worlds, the fact that Carnegie does this work, the fact that we have this affiliation with Andrew Carnegie has a persistence. There's some people who just are willing to let us invest. And access is important, right? You can have the best people of the world. If you don't have access, then you cannot be successful. And I think that's an access advantage that we have. And the people are the second advantage. And it can be fleeting if I don't do a good job of keeping them. I want to dive into this question of assessing people and think of an example, maybe in the last year or two, where you gave money to a new manager, a manager you hadn't given money to before. And in the strategy you wanted, there is another manager that you could give money to who you've also done work on. Most likely happens in those situations. In that example, what were the one or two aspects of that particular manager that led you to choose them over their closest competitor in your eyes? For me, it's always alignment. Ultimately, because I think that the terms very rarely protect you. Let's say the terms are exactly the same. It fundamentally has to do with whether that person's essence of who they are, that investor, that firm is aligned with who I am as an investor and who Carnegie is as a firm, because they've just got to decide to do the right thing because the terms don't usually protect you. I just think the reality of it, it is many arguing against a one. The terms are always going to in some way favor the GP. So you just have to align yourself with a GP who you think in the crisis is going to do the right thing. So for me, ultimately, if there are two of the same, I'm going to choose the one that I think does the right thing in a crunch period. I would echo that. I think it comes down to your assessment of people. And even on our team, sometimes we'll have two managers and you'd have different votes on the team for those same two managers. I think the one thing I would say, we don't really try to target specific areas in which to invest. We really do want the best teams. And if we really thought those two teams were, and we've done this before too, and even recently were equally good, we would try to hire them both and get rid of something else in our portfolio that we thought was less good. We really try to have a competition for alpha the way we think about it across the portfolio as opposed to kind of picking and choosing buckets that we're trying to fill. That's You didn't ask the question. Those are the mistakes that we always make. If we're trying to fill a bucket, that's usually problematic because we end up getting a B team that is not as aligned, that doesn't have the terms that we want, isn't as smart, hard work, whatever, all the things, the qualitative things that we're trying to assess. But it's a very inexact science. And even within our team, we'll have different people who would choose different, potentially equally good managers. Neil, what do you think you can do at Duke, or you do do, that a number of your other institutional peers don't or can't? I don't know. There's a lot of things that 
there's not at least somebody that can do what we do. I don't think we're that unique. A few things I would throw out. I think Duke has always had a culture ever since I've been there of being willing to, to take some risks, a risk-taking culture. And we've done a lot of things. We were very early in venture capital. That was before my time. We are very aggressive in alternatives. Broadly, privates are about half of the portfolio now. And so those are some things that I think, given the, the risk culture at Duke, we're able to do risk Culture meaning we'll take risks, but know what the risks are and not take them willy-nilly, I guess. We also do a lot in separate accounts. We've built up a big operational support team. So even on the hedge fund side, we do a lot of separate accounts, and that's more operationally difficult for some of our peers. And I think that's been somewhat of a differentiating edge. And then we do some direct investing also, not trying to replicate what our managers do. But on the private side, we do a lot of co-investing. On the public side, we do, I guess I won't use the term quantum mental. We do some sort of quasi-passive portfolio construction to do tactical bets on the public side. If you're asking me what I think is one of the things that has served us well during this period of time, I think an advantage a foundation has over an educational institution is the fact that no one feels like they own the capital that we have. Andrew's been dead 108 years, and so he didn't leave anything to his heirs. And so there's no one who feels an ownership of the capital. And so we can execute on a strategy and not necessarily have the same sort of interference that I think a lot of our peers have because they have alumni who gave $50 million who feels like you better do a better job than I would have done in managing that money or I'm angry. We don't have that sort of pressure at Carnegie. So it really is about building a strong relationship with our investment committee, with our leadership team, and being clear with them about what our strategy is and why it works. And we're able to implement that strategy over a long period of time. It doesn't hurt that our president has been our president for 22 years, and that for a very long time we had the same chair of our investment committee. There are downsides to that, but there are for sure upsides to that. And I think that there are things like that that exist in the nature of who we are that makes it easier for us to stick with a strategy and to implement a strategy. And so I'm always sympathetic to my peers who are CIOs of universities who are being pulled in many different directions by a lot of different stakeholders. I don't have a lot of different stakeholders, so I can just sort of plot a course and go at it. Neil, have you had any difference now that you've been in the seat for a dozen years or so of being pulled in different directions less today than in the past? Maybe an example of that. Being pulled less? <laughs> Probably not. I mean, I think it's getting, uh, it's been there ever since I've, I've been at Duke, and Duke has done a really good job of really trying to focus. We've, that's why they created DUMAC as a separate, we're all Duke employees, but we're a separate kind of subsidiary of Duke effectively. We're off campus, so they try to isolate us so that our mission is really the economic interest of Duke University. They've always done a really good job of that, but I think obviously with ESG and a lot of those things, we're getting more pulled into a lot of discussions that we weren't pulled into as aggressively 10 or 15 years ago. So it's, it's probably going the other way slightly from that standpoint for us. As you have to balance managing a pool of capital and managing a team of professionals, how have you learned to manage people? <laughs> it's funny. When I was offered the job to be CIO, I never really wanted to be CIO because I never really wanted to manage people. I, I view myself as an investor, not as a manager or administrator. It's the part of the job that I was most worried about, frankly. But it, it's actually... It's been one of the more rewarding parts of the job to build a team and to build a group of people with a common mission. A lot of it has been trial by fire, I think. There wasn't a training program. I guess I, I did get an MBA, so that was somewhat of a training program. But 
you don't learn until you, you do and you're in the situation. But for me, it's about developing the relationships with the people on our team and then trying to make sure that we all have a common mission and a common direction. And that's been the challenge and the learning that I've had. I have to say that when I first became a CIO, I didn't think that I would enjoy, same thing, I didn't think I would enjoy managing people. And I thought it, for a variety of reasons, including remembering how it felt to get feedback and not wanting to be the one to deliver feedback. And I think that this is one of the many instances where being a mother has served me well, because you really learn how to give feedback to a person that doesn't necessarily want to hear, but but you know is right and good for them, and that you have to provide that for them. And I try to communicate to my team and to anybody that I talk to that if someone is willing to give you negative feedback, that is a gift, because that means they care enough about you to invest in making you a better person. And when I don't like somebody, I don't say anything. Maybe just go and fail, I don't care. It does come down to that. And because it's painful, right? It's not comfortable to give people negative feedback. So I really only do it to the people who I care about and who I believe have the potential to be great. Like, why waste my time on mediocre people? So I have a team full of stars. So it makes it easier because I have played games in my mind that makes me think, oh, my God, I'm doing this great thing for them. I'm going to tell them how how much they suck at this thing. They're going to (laughs) be so much better because I've done this for them. And I've sort of communicated up front when I do that. It's a gift, right? So it's made it easier. And fortunately, I don't have a bunch of people who I think are not very good because I think that would be actually be more of a problem and it would be harder to get through. But a super team of dedicated people who are phenomenal at what they do. If I worry about anything, I worry about what to do if, in fact, the market shifts so much that we need to make some real fundamental changes and you've built a team of talented people who are executing in one way and now you have to ask them to do something very different. That will be difficult. But right now, managing them has been sort of a gift that I've been given and it it has made me a better mom, which is more important than this job for the record. Kim, that last piece you talked about, what would happen if you had to make a shift? And that's really a shift in mindset and skill set and behavior. We've all learned a lot in the last couple of years about behavioral bias and how human behavior makes it difficult for us to make good decisions. How have you thought about the lessons of behavioral finance and how you apply them to making decisions on your team? I think it was two years ago, I asked everybody on my team to give me a list of their biases. Tell me what you think gets in the way of you objectively looking at investments and that may either create an environment where you're taking risks that you should not take or that you are missing out on an opportunity that you should pursue. And I did that one just to force them to think about it because I was like, and if you come up with nothing, you failed because we all have biases. But I also wanted to make sure that we as a team agreed on what our biases were. Did they come up with something that I didn't even recognize that they had? Or were we aligned in what we thought? And I also asked them to provide to me what they thought would help them balance on the other side. What did they need? Did they need a devil's advocate or would that make them more strident? And it would not. Did they need data? What about this bias could be overcome? And how would we do that? So it really gave us an opportunity to look at those things and try to figure out how we can make our team better. And there's a very similar exercise we do with our managers. We spend a lot of time talking to them about just that thing. Just like when you think about things, how do you think about your team and how do you think about whether you've created a team full of people who all 
pat each other on the back and see the same opportunities and see the same risk? Or have you created an environment where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts? So everybody is sort of helping each other be better individuals. It's hard, right? Like I said, people are not very good at self-examination, myself included, although I try to spend more time on it than I used to. But it was a great exercise that we did. And I think that it also made it easier for the team to go out and challenge our portfolio on issues around that. What did you find when you went through that exercise? There were for sure things that like one of my team members tell me that, which I didn't recognize, that there was a certain constituency that she was affiliated with that she says, I think I'm biased against that group because my expectation is I feel such an ownership of this group of people that if in fact they fail, it's personal to me. And so I'm doubly hard. So we had to think about what that meant and how we were going to balance that out so we didn't miss out on opportunities of people because no one looks perfect. And so she felt like she was really quick to just keep eliminating people that had real opportunities to outperform. So it worked out really well. Some similarities in the way we think about it, we may not think about it as explicitly, but the big part of it for us is to have an environment or a culture internally where we can A, have a diverse group of people on the team with diverse viewpoints so that we're not all thinking the same way. And then B, maybe more importantly, have a a culture in which everybody can express their viewpoints. We like to have good arguments. That's the way we think about it internally. That's how we make the best decisions. It becomes usually fairly clear when we can get our senior people on a specific team to kind of come together support, even though we very seldom start off all in support. Then we feel like we're overcoming some of the implicit biases that individuals may have on the backside of it, and I think while data may not be incredibly important, it is important in the decision-making, but it's even more important once we make the investment. And we track very rigorously a lot of data about our managers to make sure we have a diverse pool of managers, that they don't all look the same. We're not getting the same kind of risks from every manager in the portfolio. We have a very rigorous process that we go through from a data standpoint to track that and check that. And that's we want to kind of have a portfolio that is as independent as possible from the risks that our individual managers are taking. Let's dive into this question of data. Because there's certainly a perception that the way that data, data analytics, and technology are pervading global economies, you start at the company level, you work your way, maybe managers are starting to use it, and then you get to the allocators and there's, well, you know, we kind of run a few statistics here and there. So what are you doing differently with this data that you can do today because of the abundance of it that you might not have been able to a number of years ago? I'll give you a few examples, I guess, and I don't know that any of this is revolutionary, but we have full transparency on about... 90% of our portfolio. So we have a very robust data set. We can look at daily P&Ls for all of our public managers. We have it all plugged into Bloomberg. And that in and of itself can be distracting or it can be a very valuable tool to let you identify if something strange is going on in the portfolio. I think from an analytics standpoint, I'll just give you one example. Because we have the position level data and we see how our managers are trading around, we do trading analysis on our portfolios doing things like tracking if the manager hadn't traded the portfolio this year or this quarter versus if they did, how would that have done? What are their trading costs? How much do they lose each year based upon the way that they're trading the portfolio? Things that may not be intuitive to us as we are and have actually sometimes been very surprising to us, the outputs once we've invested with a manager and we're trying to do better about doing it even before we invest. So that's one example of how we've used data. And even in that example, if you now have a new input in your assessment of that manager and you find, let's say you run this analysis and you say, oh, this manager isn't adding value trading. Yeah. 
Do you act on it? <laughs> Sometimes we do. I mean, usually what we do is we share the data with our managers, and that's where it's been more powerful in the past. We'll share the data with a manager, and the manager will say, huh, I didn't realize that, which is sometimes a red flag in and of itself. But we've had some managers who have adjusted their approach because of the data that we've provided, not telling them they have to do this. If it's the point where it's such a concern that we are no longer comfortable with a manager, we've hesitated to dictate to the managers how to manage their portfolio. We've tried that a few times. It becomes very messy and complicated. So usually we'll just step away at that point. And if we can't share the data with them, get comfortable with how they're going to process and use that data going forward, then we tend to step away. And Just pull that thread one more. You have a manager that you've now gone to, and they're adjusting their trading based on this input that you provided them. How does that make you feel about their sort of independence and conviction as a manager as compared to their ability to evolve? If they did it based solely on our analysis, that would be problematic because we're doing a very rudimentary. What we've seen is it usually pushes them to do a more thorough review of their own processes and approach and come up with their own way. We're not telling them what to do. We're just saying, hey, here's an issue that we're seeing you're losing 600 basis points a year in trading costs. Your alpha has been flat. I mean, something's wrong here. And that's usually enough for them to go. We're not telling them, hey, you need to trade less or whatever. They then go through and identify, we're moving our net and gross exposures too much or in the case of a long-short equity manager, or maybe we are trading too much and we're trying to limit the whatever it is. We want them to come up with the answers. We're just telling them what the yellow or red flags are. Kim, data? I think we similarly do. We analyze data and we share it with our managers and we'll say, this is what we found. And one of the things we found is that, as always, data is in the interpretation. And so sometimes we provide data and they say, oh, that's the way you look at it, but this is how we look at it. And it's always enlightening because we're solving for this, you're solving for that, and this is why we do it. And it tells us a little bit more about what our portfolio looks like. And we want to make sure that we understand how they're going to make decisions. And so when we provide them with that information, sometimes it tells us something about how they're going to react in different environments and maybe changes how we think about them and how much or little we would want them to have at any given moment. And it's created really thoughtful conversations because we don't present it to them with the expectation that they're going to change behaviors. We just want to understand why something is happening the way it's happening. And that has really created some fruitful conversations. I think for us internally, we have a lot of data about ourselves and sort of the decisions we've made over time. And I think one of the things that we've had to do with so much data all the time is really decide what is important and what is a priority, because you could absolutely be engulfed with the amount of information that you have, and it could keep you from making good decisions. And so we've sort of tiered what information is most important for us. And for us as a foundation, we figured out that liquidity is the thing that we've got to spend the most time. We have no inflows of capital. We have to understand that in the ways that we perhaps wouldn't have been able to do before because of the complexity of what kind of scenario analysis we do around liquidity. So it's not just, it used to be just how much capital we had at any one time. How much could we get in a day? How much could we get in a week, a month, a year? And now it's, if something happened and we had to take capital, what would it do to the construction of the portfolio? Where could we get it from? How would that impact our ability to invest going forward and to put capital into managers? We put in 
more information around who will accept capital from us, who won't accept capital from us, and really think about what flows will look like in different scenarios. And I think that has helped us make some decisions about sort of what tranches we go into managers and how much illiquidity we will give them, because we're often willing to trade illiquidity with our managers because we think that we're long-term investors. We don't need a lot of liquidity. And so to make sure that when we trade that off, we're really thinking about our full portfolio. So I think it's helped us prioritize which data is the most important for us. And we solve for this first. And then once we have that, then we can go on to this thing and this thing. But I think on some level, there's too much data, right? It's hard to decide how to use it sometimes. And with a team that's small, we have a total of six investment professionals and myself, and two of them are analysts, and we hire analysts straight out of college, so they're young, and so they're not necessarily adding any investment judgment. So we just really have four investment professionals. Too much data is overwhelming. So prioritizing data is probably what we spend our most time thinking about now, is which ones really actually will influence in decision-making. What's the most recent significant research project that you've done, either on markets managers or with your team? So the Carnegie team does team trips every three years. Whole team goes. And the idea is we don't necessarily have a fully developed thesis before we go. That's why everybody goes and and everybody can ask questions. And the assumption is that it perhaps isn't something that we would invest in in the short term, but we're building knowledge so that when there's an inflection point, we'll know it, we'll recognize it, we can invest later, and we can. So we try to do it around something that we think is a long-term opportunity. In 2012, we went to Latin America. We visited something like eight countries in 10 days and really went deep. And we visited regulators and, and economists and academics and managers in every asset class and really did a deep dive as a team. 2015, we went to Europe and we bifurcated that between emerging Europe and what we called submerging Europe. So things that were having issues in Europe. And so that was a very comprehensive trip. And it was interesting because it told us what wasn't going to be a market we were probably ever going to spend time investing in because variety of reasons. The next trip, the person who does our emerging markets was like, I'm planning every trip. Somebody else has got to do one. And so we did agriculture and food just this past month. And we didn't actually think that given our return hurdles and given how we invest, that there would necessarily be a lot of opportunities in food in the near term. But we thought it would tell us something about the markets in different places. And it was a global phenomenon and food was changing so rapidly. And so we, as a team, went and we broke it up into a trip to D.C. and Virginia and a trip out to the West Coast. And we all went and lost one of my analysts, who is now a farmer. Obviously, (laughs) she learned something. She literally is quit to go farm at one of the places we visited. (laughs) Millennials, there's nothing like them. (laughs) So I don't know. Nothing emerged from that that said that we're going to invest in it right now. But for sure, it gave us real insights on how technology is changing in these industries and how people are thinking about things. And so it's really valuable. And more importantly, it's valuable for us to learn how we as a team operate and really question each other. And people don't necessarily go with each other to meetings very often. And so to see the type of questions your colleague asks that is not something you ever thought about asking. And now you think about asking that question and you may figure out how you can use it when you go and speak to your manager. So agriculture is the most recent one. Right before that, we did cryptocurrency and blockchain, which was fascinating. 
we do these research papers that are big and comprehensive every few years. It's just because we'd love to do them more, but the staff is small, so it's hard to do. Yeah, I think ours tend to be in the two buckets, either things that have done really poorly and we're trying to figure out were we just wrong or is this an opportunity? So things we've done a lot on emerging markets, a lot on commodities, particularly energy, probably over the last few years there. And then on things where there are opportunities like cryptocurrency, we also spend a lot of time on cryptocurrency as an example. I think the one that's the most sort of organizationally impactful that we've really been focused on is this idea of data. And we've, we're beginning to try to take all the data that we have and create our own kind of DUMAC data warehouse that has all our data and see if we can use that data to identify interesting investment opportunities in a more systematic way than we've done it in the past. And this is still very early days, so I'm not sure where this will end up. But that's probably the big project across the organization, both on the investment side and the operations side, that we are really driving forward to see if there's something that we can do with that. Right. Well, I want to ask you one more question, which is what is the biggest thorn in your side? <laughs> We've talked about a lot of them already. The things that are most challenging for me, I think, even though I like the team and the people, but I think managing teams and people and boards are probably the most challenging part of my job and student groups, especially if you throw those in there. Those would be the biggest thorns in my side. I think we've spoken about each of those to some degree already. Full thorn bush. Full yeah. thorn bush, yeah. yeah. Kim? I agree that the people issues are the things that are the thorniest. And it's kind of like I said before, it's kind of how you think about your children. You love them so much, but God, they whine all the time. And you're like, <laughs> it's enough. I mean, like, let's just talk about the rose instead of the thorn for a second. Can you guys just focus on what's good? Sometimes it's hard to remember how important some of these issues are to people and to give it its proper due. But it's hard, right? Because all the different stakeholders, your board, your investment committee, your the program officers who have issues around the investment staff. And right now, the investment staff in our office is on the 32nd floor and everybody's below. So they call us the penthouse and that they're section eight and like why the investment team in the penthouse and like issues around that and just trying to really understand why people feel the way they do. It takes a lot of energy. Great. Well, please join me in thanking Neil, Kim, and of course, Ted. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 